Hello everyone and welcome to the Bootser Founder Podcast. Today I'm talking to Andrew Gazdecki, a pillar of the founder community and himself founder of the acquisition platform formerly known as MicroAcquire, but we'll learn more about that on the show. Besides organizing millions of dollars worth of acquisitions every month, Andrew is a true teacher. His content on building software businesses is spectacularly useful. Unfortunately, he will share a lot of it with us today. Here's Andrew Gastecki. There's one thing you do with your brand that just is so incredibly attractive to me and probably a lot of people in the community. And that's the way you build in public. That is just the most enjoyable thing for something that has grown into a big platform. So people don't usually expect the founder of such a big thing to be this hilariously relatable. How do you grasp the sentiment of the community so well? Where does it come from? I don't know. I've always been just a person that likes to laugh, like things I would do when I would drive to work instead of listening to music, I'd actually listen to stand-up comedy. Just, I've always felt laughter is just such an important element of life. And just, I like to laugh a lot. So whenever you're laughing at something that I post, like, trust me, I'm, I'm laughing probably like twice as hard. Like, so I guess like to answer your question, I don't know. I think I like to do funny things and just make things fun. And if people think it's funny too, great. It certainly makes um, your your online personality super relatable. You know, like the, there are some people who are in the acquisition space that are kind of untouchable because they are so serious about what they do. And you're kind of the opposite of that. And I'm very thankful for this because that industry in particular needed some deserialization, if that's a word. You know, like needed some more, be more relatable, particularly as MicroAcquire is interfacing with all these little solopreneurs, all these people who just run their own business, who are not gigantic enterprise businesses, right? We're just people. So having somebody to help them, like what you do with the business, with your platform, that is also a real person. I think that is just a great way to, to relate to the community that you're actually serving. And I kind of want to talk about MicroAcquire, obviously, because that's the big thing that, that you're working on today. And one thing, that one question that I had when I first saw you were building this thing was how and why on earth would anybody try to build a two-sided marketplace? Like that's just the most complicated thing to ever build for anybody, right? Like if you build a SaaS, they always tell you, don't build a two-sided marketplace. You have this like bootstrapping problem for either side. Like how did that choice happen? And <laughs> is it fun? Is it enjoyable? <laughs> because yeah, it seems hard. Yeah, you know, one thing I've always done in my career is I've never started the same business twice. So I, I started with a job board and then I bootstrapped a SaaS business and then I created a crypto protocol company and then I jumped into a marketplace and it's actually an N-sided marketplace where there's multiple different types. So it's not just a two-sided marketplace. It's actually like a four-sided marketplace because um, we have third-party financing partners. We have M&A advisors that we can refer to you. We have legal partners. So there's there's a lot of moving parts inside the business, just outside of buyers and sellers. So it gets even more complex than you just described. So, uh, And it's it's hard. Um, but I, I guess the point I'm trying to make is as a, as a, a startup nerd, geek, founder, whatever I, you know, you want to describe me as, I like learning new business models. I like diving in on really hard stuff. That's when I kind of, you know, get the most excited is if it's super, super, super easy, 
um, I get bored of it, I think, quickly. And I like the challenge of just the unknown and just kind of, I don't know, like you just look at something and you just say, can I build something like that? And then I get the most enjoyment of just, you know, actually, okay, let's let's figure out how all the other marketplaces did it. Let's study this. Let's learn this. Oh, did, did you do that? Was that something oh, yeah. you actively did? Yeah. So a small little tidbit, um, unknown secret, um, or not not a well-known secret about Microquire. Before Microquire actually built um, another marketplace called podcastrentold.com. It was just a simple, I used uh, ShareTribe to build the marketplace. And I just saw a tweet that was like, I wish there was something where you could rent podcast studios and just have you sit down and podcast. And I just put it together and optimized it for like SEO. And then I read Shared Tribe's book on Marketplace. And then I read all of these other articles on Marketplaces. So I like really understood Marketplace's models. And then I ended up selling it on Microquire, which is kind of funny. It's like full circle. Pretty meta. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that, that, that is, uh, to me, like that's one thing I failed at in my, my founder career. Like I was trying to bootstrap a two-sided Marketplace. It wasn't even N-sided. It wasn't that complicated, but it was a like an attempt to build a local food distribution marketplace where people from the city could buy like locally grown vegetables and stuff from outside the city in Berlin and back in Germany. That's what we wanted to build, a couple friends and I. And we had immense problems like getting either side of the marketplace bootstrapped, like just getting it set up so that people would actually flock to the platform. Because whenever, you know, whenever a farmer would come to us, they wouldn't see any customers. And whenever a customer would come to us, they wouldn't see any farmers. That was a big problem. And I think one that any marketplace, however many sides they might have, struggles with in the beginning, even just conceptually, understanding that it can be done probably is already hard so what um what research uh led you to then trust that you could set it up like what kind of what kind of insight allowed you to just go at it and what did you do like what were the steps that you took to actually get this going yeah good question so to start i didn't think it was gonna work i actually keep a journal where uh, every month it's not like a weird weird journal like dear diary it's more just you know, what I'm working on, what's going well, uh, where I think I'll be in 30 days. And I, it's a, it's a good just process, I think for entrepreneurs, because what I love about it is, um, when you look at what's not going well and you read it again in 30 days, I guarantee you 99% of the time you'll read them and be like, Oh, Oh, those problems. Oh, those are, uh, those are already gone solved. Now I have new problems right down. So it kind of gives you this perspective that, you know, startups are hard and you're always dealing with something and it, it tends to work itself out if you, you know, focus on uh, solving the problem. But, uh, you know, I, I I researched, you know, all over the place in terms of what worked and, you know, the, the biggest piece of advice for marketplaces is focusing on the side that's the most important or the hardest to really attract. And I made the decision after looking at you know, other competitors in the space. And I felt everyone was kind of favoring the buyers. And so to make it work, I felt, you know, it needed to be, or I felt really just in the marketplace in general, there was this big void where there was no marketplace that really felt like it was favoring the founders, the, the owners of the business. It wasn't a place where you can, you know, get a cheap deal on a business or, you know, you find these businesses and, you can flip them or something like that because um, no one wants their business flipped, you know, because that means you sold it for too low and then someone else bought it and 
being a prophet. And so I thought that was just, I don't know, as a startup founder, I just thought like I'd scratch my own itch, if you will. And so that's how I built a lot of the, um, I guess the unique parts of MicroQuire, like the privacy aspect, um, no fees, I thought was interesting. I didn't want to pay any fees. Um, so I, that's, that's kind of the best answer I have is just, I, I scratched my own itch and just after, um, you know, going through just acquisitions myself, just understanding like the hard parts and the hardest part being finding the right buyer and then doing due diligence on the buyer and how to communicate with the buyer. So creating a lot of educational material around that. Um, and then I guess people liked it. So to my, <laughs> to my surprise, so my, my second journal entry after launch was, you know, Hey, it worked a little bit, but I really do have a journal entry. It says something like, I don't know if this is going to work, but at least the website looks really good because <laughs> I tried making the design really nice. Um, cause I mean, there was a thought process behind that. I just mm -hmm. thought, you know, trust had to be at the core of MicroQuire for someone to really list their, their company and share their financial details and just this information that buyers need. And so I felt like we kind of had to like out startup a startup, if that makes sense. Like we're even a startup founder goes to the website and they go, wow, that's a good design or this feel the UI UX. Um, that's another just random tangent I can throw in is I think just user experience and design is such a competitive advantage if you can get it right, just because things that like trust and like, like feel good and look good. Um, I, I tend to love those products or gravitate towards those products. Yeah, absolutely. That makes perfect sense. Also, I would like to bring this back to my description of you as a relatable person on Twitter. I think that's also UX for your business in a way, right? The experience that people have with you on Twitter as a person, as a founder of the platform, as a person that funnels them into this, this product, the fact that you're relatable and that you're trustworthy, because first off, you have like, what, like 200,000 followers or whatnot at this point. Like, you, you are a reputable person in the community. People notice that. And that, that, that little trust kind of gets projected onto your business as well. I think UX and UI <laughs> extends beyond the actual product. It's, it's really like the whole business and how it interfaces with people. Yeah, I think over time, you know, um, you want to you want to start thinking about, you know, experience from end to end. So you, what you're describing is just like the whole customer experience. Like, how do they hear about us? How do they feel about the product? Um, what is their interaction with, you know, the support team or does the product run slow or fat? Like there's so many aspects of the whole experience end to end. And I think you're touching on something that um, I think is kind of a shift we've seen in the last like three years, like a, a decade ago to get the word out about your company, you had to go through just basically PR was the main route. That was, you know, people weren't posting on LinkedIn as much. People weren't as active on Twitter. That wasn't really a, a thing. And now more than anything, I think people are becoming uh, less reliant on news and more, they're looking for, you know, I guess like an, like an emotional connection or a personal, like you're saying, uh, a relatable figure tied to a business that they trust and that they can look towards for support or questions or, I don't know, laughs sometimes. Um, so that's, that's also, I think, something that 
is changing just in business in general is I, and I say this often where, you know, every startup should have a chief storyteller officer or a chief, uh, just basically brand ambassador, someone to talk about the business. That's like you said, relatable human, not just, you know, a, a brand face. Um, and there's, there's, if you look at any sort of brand, I think you'll notice it where, you know, the founder, or the CEO of the company, if they make an announcement comparative towards if the company makes the announcement, whatever it may be, um, generally the person will get more interaction because you're interacting with a person and not just kind of a, a, a brand, if you will. And you don't know who's behind that brand. So, so that was another like thought I had. I don't, I don't know if that tidbit is helpful, but. Oh, absolutely. I think like that the fact that brands that are faceless are almost completely untrustworthy wherever you look. Like people just don't trust them. They 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 have understood at this point after a couple decades of being kind of just like shushed by those companies like in, in every customer service interaction that you may have with a faceless brand there's another person you don't know they don't want to know you you don't want to know them they kind of don't even want to solve your problem for you they just want to get that conversation over like you've been kind of suppressed by all these businesses and now that you see companies actually led by real people not just led also just being inhabited by real people right you, you see lots of in, in our space in the, in the bootstrap space or the indie funded space there are a lot of companies where not just the founder is speaking for the company but every engineer in the company is active on twitter or writing um just blog posts or just sharing information from within the company and from within the industry of the company that the company is in and that just makes it so much more relatable to see that business and when i my example for this uh would be i think fathom analytics right with paul, paul jarvis and check ellis like those two people are so present on social media that i don't think of fathom as a business i think of the thing that these two guys do and the other developer that's in the team, right? That's kind of how, how I perceive that business, which is it's not even the, the, a corporate, like the, the corporate kind of faceless thing that most businesses are technically if you look at like the founding documents and stuff, but it's an extension of people. I think you're doing this really well as well. Yeah, and I guess, you know, a better articulation of what I was trying to get at is I think we've seen a shift away from, you know, business to be like B2B, business to business to more human to human where people, they want to interact with the founder. They want to interact with employees. They want to hear from actual people and not just, you know, like a floating logo or something like that. I, I recently had a conversation um, with, with, um, with somebody who talked to me about like how we are actually kind of shrinking the sizes of the the kind of communities that we're in right the whole social media space used to be gigantic and everybody could talk to everybody but now we're finding all these little niche communities in which we find people that we can actually build relationships with and that we can trust and it's it feels to me that even in the b2b space there is a kind of movement towards like making relationships with people at other companies because that provides a layer of trust that just a business to business even just contractual business to business relationship could not present right if i know this person and i sent them an email i know they're going to read it and think of me not just of the money that they can make from me and my business that's how how i feel those relationships with businesses are starting to become more important as they happen between people not just between um <laughs> yeah companies yeah and i think um you, you hit on something good there with you know, just the importance of just adding value to whatever community that you're serving and have no expectation of anything in return. 
that just pays dividends over and over and over. So that could be through a social account that can be through, you know, giving away a product for free, um, creating educational materials completely for free. But yeah, like really adding value to these very specific communities, I think is, you know, a, a smart strategy for really a- any company really. And you should, you should be doing it. Yeah. And you have been, right. Sorry. Yeah, but it's kind of like a, I don't have like a strategy around it though. Um, I wish I could give you like, here's what I do day to day. Um, but it's usually just kind of ad hoc. Like, um, so I don't know if that falls under <laughs> authenticity or just, I don't know, random, random madness. Yeah, probably you, you don't need like a really thought through strategy. I think the the impetus, the, the wanting to help people, that is an, enough. You know, is that's enough to make you do these things over time. You don't need like a, a spreadsheet and, you know, every day I help four people in one specific way. I think some people might need this, but if you have a more loose approach to this, I think like sharing whatever comes to mind when it comes to mind with the people that you think can use it best. That's kind of, at least that's my approach in, in many ways. But you've also been doing this in a more formal sense internally, right? You've produced a lot of internal tools for founders who want to sell their business to, you know, p- do P&L stuff and to, to prepare for due diligence and that. And I feel that is adding value also, like, for, for people at a very, very important stage, just coming to terms with, do I want to sell my business or not? And I've, I've been very excited to see this because most companies that uh, did this service that you do, which I would call brokerage, I'm not sure if that's the right name for it, but it's kind of you try to find buyers for sellers, right? it's the best term I can come up with. They have done this really like behind closed doors. They take on your property, they deal with it, and then they give you a price and something. But for you, that this this way more in, in the hands of the founder themselves. What made you choose this kind of approach? Um, I think it's just what I wanted. And I think maybe just the understanding of the customer helped. If I'm just kind of thinking, uh, you know, back because I myself, like I, again, I'm a, I'm a big startup fan and a nerd. I don't, I don't care if you're building, you know, a one person startup or a thousand person. I think it's all awesome. You know, I think I, I love people that are, are building stuff. And so I guess for me, just almost being a potential customer myself, like I built something that I wish existed and I was delighted to see that other people were delighted to see it existed too, if that makes sense. Um, But yeah, again, I, I guess just when you understand just kind of like, you know, when I looked at the market, you know, I, again, I saw uh, basically uh, a lot of a lot of um, fragmentation, so there was no central place to to really sell your business. There was there's different brokerage firms, but there's no real differentiation from what they do. It's service based. There wasn't really any innovation in terms of making things simpler, easier, faster, more efficient, and that really starts to culminate into a large opportunity. And that's when I kind of had my moment of like you know, I'm going to try and see if I can actually make this work. And also, how do you position that? How do you get the word out? How do you, you know, stand out in a crowded market of, 
you know, this broker, that broker, this marketplace, this other marketplace. So my idea was to just kind of scratch my own itch and build tools that I would have wished that I wish I had when I was selling um, businesses or just the marketplace that I thought, you know, the startup ecosystem as a whole really needed. And I know that's not very like methodical or, you know, informative of like this master plan I had, but um, it really was just kind of scratching my own itch. Like just, I wanted a marketplace where you could find buyers within minutes where we made legal documentation creation easier or free. It made uh, due diligence faster by being able to connect financial metrics, uh, being able to keep things private because a uh, funny story when I um, sold business apps, I remember the day I told employees that I was selling the company, I had like a all hands like meeting and I'm like standing up at some, some podium or something like that. And I tell everybody and then I say, Hey, I'm, I'm going to be over in the back. Um, if anyone has any questions, you can come ask me, you know, one-on-one and like the questions were so crazy. They were like, am I a billionaire or like a millionaire or like, when am I getting fired? Like, <laughs> you know, so that's when I knew like privacy needed to be, you know, uh, you know, uh, a, a big piece of it. And then just trust and security in terms of preventing like scams. So just kind of, you know, taking my personal experience um, and then just looking at what was already in the market and realizing this needed to exist and was missing in the market. Um, that, that That's kind of how it all happened, I guess. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, yeah, the, the privacy parts... Um... With employees, that's that's always a story. I I watched a little documentary um, that Patrick Campbell released a c- couple months ago about his his sale of Profitwell to Paddle, and I think they they also had filmed the moment where he, he told the team <laughs> that was an interesting shot. Everybody's like, eh, "What's going on?" You could see their minds racing, just figuring out, okay, what is my job gonna look like in a couple months? Am I gonna have a job? Am I rich? Like exactly what you said. Like people just need uh, information at that point, and you may not even be in the in the place for, to communicate that, okay? Because it's at an early stage of the whole process. So keeping this under wraps for a while probably a good idea. <laughs> Yeah, like another another funny t- tidbit is um so I mean one of my biggest fears when selling a business was my team finding out and then it falls through cuz then you have a whole team wondering okay when are you going to sell the business like I should probably quit cuz I'm either becoming a millionaire, billionaire, I'm getting you know like those questions are still in their heads and you don't have an answer and you don't you don't have a buyer. Um so when we were going through due diligence uh, it was my VP of engineering, CFO, um, and chief customer officer. And I believe maybe, maybe one more person. And when you see kind of all the, you know, um, VPs and, you know, the, the CEO and stuff in a room for like weeks at a time, you're like, what's going on? <laughs> uh, and then I told, I was like, oh, we're just being audited by the IRS. We got to compile all this stuff. <laughs> And we had previously been audited. Mm-hmm. Um, so that just just in case it fell through, because we didn't know if like the offer was real or if we'd get to the finish line, because unfortunately deals do fall apart all the time. Yeah. And it would suck to like tell your company and then it doesn't go through. And then you're kind of like, well, let's keep going, you mm-hmm. know? So 
yeah, it's a motivation problem, right? Like you have this, like you, you, you've shown your cards kind of where you want this to go, particularly <laughs> that it that it might end, <laughs> and then it's kind of hard to keep people like infinitely motivated at that point. Exactly, it, it, it's a setback. You know, when you make the decision to sell, you know, you really want to be in that that mind space, and you want to let your team know, ideally early in the process, but not early enough to where you know, you run into a situation where it distracts everybody and it falls through and then you're left without a buyer for potentially another year or something like that. Um, Cause you could lose employees over it or even worse customers. So that's, uh, that was an interesting experience. Yeah. I guess any kind of instability causes trouble, like some kind of churn, either employee churn or, or real revenue churn. One, th one thing I just heard was you saying that you were in, in a room with all your VPs for weeks. Does that mean that you were not really prepared for an exit? Was that, I'm just just asking, right? Because due diligence takes a long while and depending on how and who you sell to, um, it has a different kind of intensity. Um, were you prepared? Did you ever consider this to be a business to be sold at the point with business apps? Oh yeah. Uh, I, I don't understand if I'm being candid, I don't understand, um, when people are talking about like, just make, you know, run off the profits for like 20 years or something like that. Cause I always ran business apps at break even. So any profit that we had, cause I viewed it as an asset. So I could either take the profit or reinvest the profit into the most valuable asset that I had. And I had control over the growth and the value of it. So I kept pushing, growth um constantly on the business it was profitable within the first like two three years because it grew from like zero to three million in the first two years if i'm recalling correctly and then three to seven and it just it grew to a point like faster than we could spend the money and then i ran it from break even um after we had like uh let's call it two million or something in our company bank account um and then so yeah, during the due diligence process, given the, the size of the company, as a company, it's big, you have employee contracts, it's, you have to go over, um, depending on who you sell to, due diligence can look entirely different. But it was just the complexity of the business because we had you know an iOS team, we had an Android team, we had a customer service team, we had a sales team, um, we had international employees, we had... Um, you know, there was just a lot of moving parts to the business. It wasn't like a Shopify app or something like that. And so the more complex your business is, the more due diligence that's going to be required. And then the firm you sell to or the company that you sell to, depending on, um, uh, you know, their due diligence requirements, it, it all depends. Um, but the due diligence that we did with the firm that we sold to, the private equity firm, it was a just like a fast paced like thirty day due diligence like checklist that we got, and then we had to just run through it. So it 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 wasn't fun, um, but um, we 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 made the best of it. <laughs> yeah, our operation was a bit smaller. Our due diligence was also a little bit smaller than that, but checklist style probably is uh, just what a what a SaaS. Uh, acquisition like a financial acquisition looks like right there's uh, if there's a surprise then they know where to look for it at that point and then they'll figure it out you've been writing about this like you wrote a book just want to want to mention that because i i really enjoyed it for, first off because it's a great telling retelling i guess of your story coming to where you are right now and why you're doing what you're doing also the second part of the book has a lot of really succinct and all over the place in the best sense of the word tips 
for how to build a business that is actually sellable. My, my strategy has always been a good business is a sellable business and a sellable business is a good business. So anything you can do to ter- turn your business into a better business also makes it more sellable. Do you have like, now with your insight into um, so many businesses that I, I don't know, like how, how many hundreds, thousands of businesses have been sold on MicroAcquire at this point? Uh, probably, I'd say over a thousand at this point. Um we average about like like seventy five to hundred per month, and this last this last month uh, we did about forty five million in acquisitions, and the previous month we did about the same. So it's it's shockingly, you know, the deal sizes are getting bigger. So that's that's been fun to watch because those acquisitions are very meaningful to the individuals because you know, million dollars if you bootstrap a, a business is a fantastic outcome like you're you're potentially a millionaire depending on taxes and what you pay not in um, germany so that, but yeah <laughs> yeah also not in the united states all the time but if you sell for like two or three million then yeah you're you're a millionaire um which is which is extremely life-changing yeah with that level of um insight because you probably have a lot of data you know, you know from that and I don't want to pry too much. If like any question I'm asking is like too specific, let me know. But with that level of insight, do you have you found anything that is particularly conducive to being acquired? Like any kind of approach to business, any kind of metric that people uh, focus on, or you know whatever it might be that makes a business more sellable? Have you found anything there? Yeah, I think it depends on what price range you're trying to sell in. Like, for example, when you get past, a lot of people don't know this, but when you get past, say, $10 million in annual recurring revenue, your buyer pool unlocks to a completely different set of buyers. And I don't know why it's that mark, but around $10 million in annual recurring revenue, you get exposed to a completely different type of buyer group than you would at, say, two, three, four, five million. At that price point, you're going to be working with different firms. So they're going to be looking for things like, you know, profitability, um, you know, at 10 million in your current revenue, if you're break even, they're going to be looking at, you know, typical metrics like uh, what is your churn? What is your growth rate? Um, you know, c- how profitable could this be or how much farther can this go in terms of growth? So it, it really depends. But if we wanted to like put together a million dollar business, all the time I see simple Shopify apps made by, you know, two people or something like that. Very, very low in terms of expenses, highly profitable. Um, those businesses tend to sell really, really quickly. Um, and then as you get kind of bigger, you know, I think just uh, defensibility is probably the next thing I would I would point to in terms of, you know, is there platform risk? Is there, uh, you know, some sort of unique moat around the business? How stable is it? How long have you been in business? those all kind of can push up your final sale price. Uh, And then, I mean, really just having a great business. I know that's kind of a cop-out answer, but, you know, there's a saying like the best business to sell is um, a business that you don't want to sell because it's, it's growing, it's doing well, and that will attract the most buyers because it truly is a great business. Um, And then, uh, you know, if you go below a million, I would say, you know, quality of product is really important. Uh, but then really throughout every bucket that I'm describing, below a million, a million, 
or five million and above, you know, um, just having your numbers um, in order is just so important in terms of is the business capital efficient or are you just losing a ton of money? That's a terrible, like you, it's really, really hard to sell a business that's just losing money uh, month over month. So having either some path to profitability um, or ideally being profitable is how a lot of buyers will value your business. Um, what are some other things I've seen? Uh, I mean, I've seen so many different like, you know, types of businesses sold. It's hard to really say this is like the exact formula because there's also so many different types of buyers looking for different types of businesses, whether that's SaaS businesses, um, you know, SaaS and, and MarTech, or it could be SaaS developer tools. It could be e-commerce, direct-to-consumer businesses. I work with funds that are specifically rolling up Shopify apps. So there's also kind of buyers for every type of business that you could kind of think of. It just needs to be a healthy operational business that ideally doesn't need to have you in the business to run. Like if you as a founder steps out and everything falls apart, um, that makes it business much harder. So that's probably another tip is um, you want to have a way to, you know, show that this business can operate without you. Or if you're not there yet, then have, um, you know, some sort of transition plan in place with the buyer. Uh, like when I, when I sold business apps, I was the most useless person at that company. Um, so it made it easy to, you know, make the transition. Cause I, I really didn't even know how things worked at that point. Was that, was that intentional? What did you build like a franchisable or kind of remove, be, be replaceable kind of position for yourself there? I was, I actually considered stepping down as CEO and making my, and hiring on a CEO and then just stepping back. And then we had an offer to sell the business. And so I went down that route instead. Um, but no, I just had such a great team. I had engineering was taken care of, um, you know, customer support and sales was, was managed by this, um, wonderful lady, Rose Romaine, uh, who is probably one of the best um, individuals I've ever worked with, uh, you know, I had a fantastic CFO, just everyone was just so great in the business that I really, I would still do stuff. Like, I, I mean, I didn't just do it, didn't do it. I'd still do like sales calls with the sales team. I'd still do support calls with the support team. I'd still be very involved, like in the product, but I wasn't truly needed. I wasn't like the bottleneck anywhere in the business. And I think when you get to that point within your business, then your business becomes really attractive to buyers because they know without you, um, you know, they can find a new CEO, they can, you know, maybe bring in someone with strengths that you don't have or something like that. Um, so that's just a, a personal tidbit. Yeah, sounds like uh, the, the dream for every solopreneur is to not be needed in their own business. And probably the hardest part too, right? Because if you if you build your own thing and you don't hire immediately, you try to do as much as possible, then uh, you kind of yeah you you make yourself like un irreplaceable kind of eventually because you know you take all the jobs and you do all the things. What do you have any like? At what point did you start hiring? Because that's that's one, been one of my problems. Like I hired way too late. I did way too many things by myself and probably could have grown the business to a much bigger size had we hired earlier. I mean, we still sold and we sold well, but, you know, you always wonder, like, what is a good time to start hiring? How did you do it? Um, for business apps, 
So, I mean, we, since we bootstrapped the business, we had a saying, only hire when it hurts. Mm-hmm. And it hurt pretty much the entire time. So, uh, you know, I think looking back that it could have been a bigger business like yours, if if I'm being candid, if I had hired people earlier. But um, I was so young, I just, you know, I, I remember specifically a moment where we needed a a VP of marketing really bad. And they wanted like 200,000 as a salary. And I was like, there's a way I'm paying that. And I'm like three years out of college or something like that. But in hindsight, you know, what you want to do is you want to hire people smarter than you as soon as you can afford them because they're creative to the business. And what I mean by that is they'll add so much value and improve the business to a point where you never could on its own. They'll add, they'll pay for themselves essentially by adding new customers, improving processes, or just, you know, reducing your overall stress uh, or how much you're working in the business and allowing you to work on the business. So when you start hiring, I mean, t- uh, as, as soon as possible, you know, I think as soon as you can hire someone to take over support. But another tidbit I would say is I think it's extremely important for founders to understand the roles that they're hiring for. Like the amount of startups I've heard having mishires in key roles like head of sales or head of marketing usually stems from not understanding, you know, what type of sales leader do you need or what type of marketing leader do you need? Uh, what type of sales process do you have? Is it really transactional? Is it mid-market? Is it enterprise? Um, all those factors, you know, you need to kind of live, you know, live the life of that role for a little bit. And, you know, and then you hire when it hurts when you, you can't, you know, manage the sales team anymore. You can't manage the marketing, you know, function of the business. But I think, you know, in terms of, let's say we're talking about bootstrap businesses with less than a million in revenue. I think, you know, the first hires you should make are definitely in support. But I do think you should be in support. Like with MicroAcquire, I did all the, all the jobs. I did all of them. And it wasn't... um and also, this is kind of a maybe another um, tidbit is, you know, that's those are the businesses that I think really go the farthest is the ones that you enjoy running so much that you're willing to do everything because um, you want to learn from your customers. You want to learn how, you know, the product should work. You want to be involved kind of everywhere, but you can't do it forever. And then at one point, you need to take a step back, document the processes and then begin hiring people, ideally better than yourself. So you can start working on the business. But, you know, when you're just getting the business off the ground, you have to work in the business and kind of do everything to learn how to, you know, how how are we going to scale this thing and where do I need the most help? Um, So to answer your question again, when to hire, I would say as soon as you uh, can afford it. And then number two, um, as soon as you feel you understand the role well enough where you can hire someone competent enough to take the role over mm-hmm. and do a better job than you're currently doing yourself. Well, thanks for pointing out uh, this distinction too, like between in and on the business, right? Working in the business, which is doing its stuff and working on the business is making the business better. I think for people in the in the indie hacking space, I, I see this a lot they really enjoy working in the business because they're technical. They want to build the product. They want to build the thing. 
anything beyond that, anything that would actually make the business grow, not the product better, not not another feature to improve the product, but you know, building relationships with other businesses in the space, building integrations with other businesses in the space to you know increase the kind of potential customer flow from other other platforms. All of that feels threatening to them, so they stay in their little technician role, which is like I guess one of the three roles that Michael E. Gerber puts out in, in the E Myth, right in his book. You have the technician, you have the manager, and you have the visionary. And as a founder, you usually have to be all three at the same time. And so I think you are because you want to be because you've understood this. But some founders, they only want to be the technician because they think, hey, if I'm just building a good enough product, it's going to sell itself. If you build it, they will come, you know, that kind of stuff. So to me, that was a problem because I also really enjoyed the technical role and everything else was kind of scary. And I had a co-founder, right? I was still blocking myself from, from going into these these fields or from even finding help for myself to be able to work on the business more. So I think that that is a, something that's really hard to deal with. I would agree. And I think, you know, just understanding what you're building if you don't step out of your comfort zone, you're just kind of building a job for yourself rather than building like a business that can scale and that can again operate without you. And that should be your goal. And it's kind of weird. It's, you know, if you really want to be a business or build a business, you know, you need to kind of fire yourself from everything, which is very ironic when, you know, being CEO of a, a company is the only job where it's a good thing when you're fired from stuff. But, you know, I think that just holds a lot of people back is that fear that, you know, of, of giving up control, so to speak, not being able to trust other people with decisions or to make their ideally decisions on their own or even fail and make decisions on their own again. And you need to just kind of accept that as your business grows, you need to grow with it. And that means relinquishing control. That means trusting employees. That means understanding you can't be involved in every single decision because if you are, you're going to be working 12, 18 hours a day and that's not sustainable at all. And I don't recommend it Yeah, unless you, yeah, unless you want to burn out. Um, But again, just having the distinction of what are you trying to build? Because also I think it's like completely awesome if you just want to have, you know, you don't want to manage a lot of people. You want to have just a one-person business. You know, I see those get acquired all the time as well for quite a bit of money. And I kind of question myself, what am I doing? Like these people are, like these two these two people worked on this for a year and they made like a couple million bucks. Um, so that I don't want to say that's not, you know, like don't do that because uh, sometimes that is, you know, fine. Um, but it is limiting. I think this quote um, might be relevant where, you know, if you want to go fast, you go alone, but if you want to go far, you go together. And so if you want to build a a business that can scale well beyond, you know, one, two, three, four, five, up to, you know, 10 or beyond million in revenue, you're going to need to build a team. And so, you know, it's a hard shift for a lot of entrepreneurs. And it was for me too. If you read my book, I mean, I talked about it quite a bit where, you know, I got, I got to a point where I realized, you know, I need to hire people smarter than myself in order for this business to scale. And when I finally did, it was it was the best thing I could have ever done for the business. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that that sounds like a tough choice, but uh, you know, it's a choice that you need to make. And I think you can you have to grow into it. Um, 
yeah, you, you just talked about relinquishing control, right? About giving up things that you have control over, giving it to other people. And I think an, an exit is the ultimate relinquishing of the control, like being acquired. And I've always wondered this about you. After exiting such a company for such an amount of money that is fairly high, right? Why did you keep building businesses? This is probably uh, one of those questions that every person exiting gets, but with you in particular, like I would like to know why did you jump into building the next thing? And because you 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 said in your book you splurged on two things, which is a, a house and a car, which is exactly the same thing that we did after our exit. So there's not much splurging, to be honest. Why go right back into building businesses? Yeah, that's that's a fascinating thing about entrepreneurs is. I think just, you know, you you feel the most, at least me personally, it's something I've just come to just accept about myself is I truly love to build businesses. It's just, it's the sport that I like to play. And so when I'm not playing it, there's nothing that really kind of, you know, brings me that fulfillment, if you will. So I'll probably always be building businesses. I've just kind of accepted that. I've been like that since I was a teenager. And so just... Even as when we went into due diligence with business apps, when I started working on a new startup, I because I immediately was thinking like, oh no, what am I what am I going to do when this closes? So right, and I don't recommend that. I recommend take a break, like in in retrospect. Don't do as I do. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I definitely do wish I took some time off. You know, enjoyed you know the win, but I just went right into. New company, new problems, new team, new challenges, you know, new wins, you know, new stuff to celebrate, new stuff to cry about. Um, but yeah, I would say I just love building stuff. I just, I think it's something I'll always be doing. Sounds reasonable. I mean, I, we wouldn't be talking if I hadn't done the same, right? Kind of, I could also sit somewhere on the beach and do nothing, but why would I? <laughs> it's so much more enjoyable. <laughs> Yeah, I when even when I go on vacation, I can't be away for. I mean, a week is probably the max, and then I start getting just like I want to get out of here. I want to go back to you know work. <laughs> like it's just it. I think put another way, you know, I, and I think about this often, but um, you know, I I feel really blessed to have you know gone down a career path where I truly enjoy everything that I do, and you know if. I do a good job, you get you get paid money for it, which is great. And so it never really truly feels like work to where I'm like pulling my hair out or I'm super stressed out. Um, you know, I'm just doing funny stuff and building stuff. Like it's just, it's fun to me. I can tell. Yeah, I, another <laughs> another uh, way to put it is, you know, I always say, you know, some people like to play tennis on the weekend or basketball or whatever. I generally just like to play startup. That's kind of the, <laughs> the the main game I like to play. Man, it, it certainly is an enjoyable game when it works, right? <laughs> I mean, even even when you fail, I think that's awesome too because it it does hurt. It does, you know, you know when things don't work out or whatever it may be. But I mean, it's just it's. I've come to the conclusion that you cannot succeed without failure. Like it's just something you have to go through. And you learn so much from it that I think, yeah, it does suck. I mean, we'll just, we'll just leave it there. But it's part of, it's part of the process. You're right, and and it's not that we're we're glorifying it either, right? It's just a, a normal part 
of experiments that some of them go wrong really that's kind of that's how i internalize it for myself yeah i mean if we really define what a startup is it's really just a series of experiments and then eventually you get something right and then <laughs> it works you know so you kind of fail and fail and fail you try this this and you could apply that to marketing sales like you're just constantly trying different things and you're failing 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 and then you get a breakthrough and then it works and then it kind of makes all that failure just like worth it if that makes sense yeah and 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 more and more i see people doing this in public like building in public obviously like building the businesses in public building the careers in public whatever they may be building and even if they fail one thing that i notice is the next time they do something they have more attention they have uh higher initial crowd of people looking at it and even if that fails the next time they do something else even more people look at it, right? Because there's always something about joining somebody's journey to an eventual success. People want to be part of that. They kind of want to be, it's like with the rock band or any music band that people like, you want to be the, the person that was at their concert when nobody knew them. That's kind of what, how building in public is attractive to people. They want to see the, the successful people before they are successful and be part of their journey. Maybe even help, help amplify uh, their story, their narrative, so that the journey can become successful. Which is why, in particular, being a builder in public, failure is just yet another little stepping stone. Oh, yeah. That's something I really wanted to ask you. Because you see uh, exits or acquisitions of all kinds of sizes. And there are kind of two paradigms in the space. One of them is the stair-stepping approach. The, you know, the Rob Walling start with an info product and then go maybe into services or cyber service and then info product and then build a SaaS and so on. Or the kind of shoot for the stars mode, I'm going to build this business and I'm going to start it and it's going to be great. Out of these two, stair-stepping and shoot for the stars, what do you recommend for founders who are getting started? Like who are not an established person yet, who don't have an exit behind uh, or in, in their history just yet. Oh, stair-stepping for sure. And I think if you look at every successful founder, you'll see some form of stair-stepping. Like before business apps, again, I had like a job board that I built. I had like a web design company that I built. I sold a bunch of stuff on eBay, you know? So like, I don't know if those count, but it's not like I just went straight into like a SaaS business. Um, so my point being is, yeah, like, you know, I always say, you know, start an agency, uh, and figure out what you're really good at and what you like to do. So kind of like take a step back. Cause I think, you know, the market that you pick and the mar and the customer that you pick to serve is so important because it's so hard to compete against a founder that loves what they do when it feels like work to you. So I, I mean, stair stepping all the way. I think you know, if if I would if I was just to start like everything over, I would probably start like a podcast like you, and then I'd probably start like a newsletter, and then I'd probably figure out, okay, how do I monetize my audience, and then I'd build a product around that. You know, I'd stair step into it. I think that's a much more practical rather than taking the one percent chance of success shot. You know, you kind of increase your chances. You know, and then also your experience as well, which increases your chances of success. So um, definitely, definitely stair-stepping. Well, what's the next stair-step? <laughs> Sorry, for MicroAcquire. <laughs> where, where is MicroAcquire going? What's, what are you going to do with that in, in the future? Uh, well, we're dropping the micro, so it's going to be just acquire.com pretty soon. And after that, I think um, we'll just have to find out. That's a big deal. 
I think. Like fr from a branding perspective, obviously, but it kind of suggests to me that you're you're going for for the whole market. <laughs> are you still gonna try to focus on um, smaller businesses, or are you gonna try to incorporate every kind of size at this point? Yeah, I mean, I started Microquire to help you know founders of all sizes, like whether you're trying to sell a business for ten thousand. But I never expected Microquire to really be able, like, we if your business is truly worth you know. 10, 50, $100 million, there's buyers on Microquire that can facilitate that transaction. And I think, you know, a lot of founders don't want a micro acquisition. They want to maximize their exit. So I think dropping the micro kind of helps us, you know, uh, with the perception, like we can actually help with these larger acquisitions too. But then of course, like we're always, I love seeing like someone in a different country. Like one of my favorite stories is, uh, someone in India who sold a platform for, let's call it, you know, 200K and they wrote me like this really nice email and they paid off all their debt. They bought their mom a house. Like we always want to support that stuff. So I would say, you know, micro, macro, whatever size your business is, like we're always going to support those acquisitions and we're going to, and I think they all deserve, you know, equal recognition and, you know, uh, celebration, if you will, because it is a huge accomplishment, regardless, you know, of the number. Yeah, yeah. Any acquisition, right? Any any exit, no, no matter how, no matter where, even even if you if you raise capital at some point, that is already also a feat that not many people actually get to do, right? So any any step forward, and any any step that gives you more financial security yourself is a good one. Yeah, I'm glad to hear it because I also I know like you coming from that background you won't forget small founders, right? You're not just going to wake up one day and think, oh, I'm not going to look at these people anymore. Like you're part of the community and people trust you with that. Um, and since we're talking about community, uh, where can people find you? Where can, pe learn pe uh, where can people learn more about you and what you do and where can they sell their business? That'd be interesting to know. Yeah, um, on Twitter, agazdecky, or you can just shoot me an email, andrew at microquire.com or just go to microquire.com and check out the marketplace. But I'm super accessible. I'm one of those inbox zero weirdos. So if you shoot me an email, it'll get answered. That's bizarre because I'm one of these inbox seventy thousand people. But I, I, do. Uh, I, <laughs> I, I can, I can prove it on my phone right now. I, I might. <laughs> We've been on a plot. No, I got eight emails. Um, <laughs> no, sorry about that. But that's that's but, I guess uh, but, talking for an hour, huh? <laughs> within the next hour, I'll have zero emails again. Man, thank you so much for being on the show. That was really sweet. Thanks for all your knowledge and helping people getting acquired. That is a is a big deal. So thanks so much for for being on, Andrew. Yeah, Arvid, thanks for uh, having me on, and thanks for everything that you do as well, man. Pleasure. Thank you. And this is a great opportunity to talk about the sponsor of this show today. Microacquire is the number one startup acquisition marketplace, and it's simply the most efficient way to sell your startup when you're ready to make your next move. Typically, as a first-time founder, you really have no idea what you're getting yourself into when you go through an acquisition. And Microacquire wants to change that for you and empower you when you're speaking with buyers and then really help you streamline this whole process of getting acquired for the maximum price without any of the headaches that come with having to go through this alone. You don't need to go alone. Microacquire can help. And they have helped thousands of startups successfully get acquired at this point, and they have facilitated hundreds of millions in close deal volume. So if you're thinking about selling your startup, 
you might want to check out My Court Choir. Go to mycourtchoir.com to learn more. And that's it for today. Thank you for listening to the Boots of Honor podcast. You can find me on Twitter at Avid Kahl, A-R-V-I-D-K-A-H-L, and you'll find my book, Zero to Sold, and The Embedded Entrepreneur, and my Twitter course, Find Your Following there as well. If you want to support this podcast and me, please go to ratethispodcast.com slash founder and leave a rating and a review. You can find the time. It would be an amazing, very helpful gesture. Thank you so much for listening and have a wonderful day. Bye-bye.